episode 59, The Boston Tea Party. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Okay, things in Boston are about to get really dicey. In this episode, we're going to look at several events that happened in Boston starting in about 1770 that are all part of the buildup of tension that leads to the beginning of the American Revolution. Last episode, we talked about the French and Indian War and how that was part of the larger Seven Years' War that Great Britain fought with France and Spain. Though Great Britain was the clear winner of that war, the British government did end up in a great deal of debt. And so they did what governments always do. They raised taxes. If you're a government, that's just what you do. And nobody likes it. And as I mentioned last episode, the British government didn't raise taxes anymore back in Britain. They mostly raised taxes on items that the colonists needed. So now we need to spend a bit of time explaining all the taxes that the British imposed on their American colonies. Before I do that, though, I should point out that, generally speaking, the colonies had been taxed at a much, much lower rate overall than the people back home in Britain. Great Britain had over a thousand years of taxation and tax structure, and none of that really applied to the colonies. So there's plenty of taxes being collected back in England that weren't being collected in the colonies, so the colonists had it pretty easy. So, certain British goods that were sold in the colonies were always taxed, but generally, the tax rate was pretty low compared to living back in England. And also, the colonial governments, each different colony, had some ability to tax their own colony, but there wasn't all that much colonial government and very little military spending back then, so then there was just not that much tax being collected by the colonial governments and therefore not that much tax paid by the colonists. Ah, to go back to those non-socialist days where a typical colonist tax rate, their total tax rate, was probably less than 5% of their total income. What have we become? Anyway, point being that in reality, Britain was probably right in thinking that the colonists were not exactly carrying their fair share of the tax burden. So the primary way that the home country taxed the colonies, not just the American colonies, but all their colonies, was to have the colonists pay a tax on items that were shipped to them from Great Britain. Usually the way it worked was that the tax or the tariff had to be paid to the owner of the ship or the captain of the ship when the new ship docked in the colonial port with some British goods. The colonial port or the importer would pay the tax and the captain of the ship would collect the tax and then offload their cargo. And then they'd carry the tax back to Great Britain, but probably taking a cut of their own on the way. Now, one of the ways that the colonists frequently got around this was by smuggling. Some colonists managed to build their own ships, and they would send these ships to other countries than Great Britain. They would buy the goods they wanted there in countries like Holland, And then they would sail back to the colonies where those new goods could be offloaded without any taxation at all. There weren't enough British tax agents in the colonies to stop this. And so at one level, it was smuggling. At another level, it was just good business. Samuel Adams, John Hancock, and several other prominent Americans were involved in this import 
read that smuggling business. More on that in a minute. So, to make up this tax burden, in 1765, the British Parliament passed the Stamp Act. Now, not to make too big a thing of it, but really, this was the beginning of the end of the British Empire. Right there. The Stamp Act of 1765. Sure, the British Empire keeps growing for a while, but this action right here ends up being the first domino that eventually is going to lead to the fall of the British Empire. The Stamp Act required that every single kind of printed material, from playing cards to official government documents, any kind of book or pamphlet, anything that anyone printed at all, had to have an official stamp on it from a designated tax stamp authority. And that authority would collect the tax when they stamped whatever printed thing was brought to them. Now, in theory, anything that was found in the colonies without the stamp could be confiscated. Or in the case of like official documents like house deeds or legal documents, those documents could be declared invalid if they didn't have the stamp, and therefore they weren't legal in a court of law. So needless to say, the colonists did not like this new tax, and they got around it any way they could. In several places in the colonies, mobs of people formed up around the tax collector's homes or offices, and they convinced them to resign their tax commission and stop collecting the tax. One of these groups of people in Boston took on the name the Sons of Liberty, and they actually broke into the local stamp officer's house, and they ransacked his house, and he subsequently resigned from being a stamp officer. We will hear from the Sons of Liberty again later in this very episode. In Virginia, a very outspoken lawyer named Patrick Henry delivered several passionate speeches in the Virginia Assembly, deriding the Tax Act as unlawful, and he introduced several resolutions into the Assembly, imploring the Virginians to vote down and not comply with the tax. Now, his resolutions were copied and printed in newspapers and disseminated all around the colonies, and they became a sort of a rallying point for opposition to the tax. And we will also come back to Patrick Henry and more of his story, but that's going to be in the next episode. In October of 1765, nine colonies sent representatives to what was called the Stamp Act Congress, which met in New York City. This was the first colonial Congress, and it would have had all 13 colonies, except some of the local governors prevented their representatives from going. This was the first time that the colonies had sent elected representatives to meet together and to respond in unison to the British government. And this was a really, really big deal. Now, this sets the stage for all of the subsequent colonial congresses and all the plans and declarations that come from them. The Stamp Act Congress sent a unanimous message to the Parliament and to the King, first stating their loyalty to the King, but then also asserting that only their own local colonial representative assemblies had the right to tax them. Now, one of the Massachusetts delegates that went to the Stamp Act Congress was a Harvard grad named James Otis. And he said, as part of this, When the Parliament shall think fit to allow the colonists a representation in the House of Commons, then the equity of their taxing the colonies will be as clear as their power as at present of doing it. It seems plain that the reason why Ireland and the American plantations are not bound is because they are not represented in the British Parliament. So you see, in that statement, 
you see the core of the colonists' complaint. No taxation without representation. That is, if you're not truly represented in the government, how can the government tax you? Right? The colonists felt that. And I feel like that applies to us today, too. We aren't really very well represented in our federal government nowadays, are we? It doesn't seem like it to me. And yet they're taxing us for useless stuff that we don't want, like a completely useless war in Ukraine. Why is money going over there? I don't know, but it's my tax money. I don't feel like I'm being represented. In the end, the Stamp Act was not successful in raising revenue for the British government, but it was very successful in raising colonial opposition to the British government. So the very next year, in 1766, Parliament repented, and they repealed the Stamp Act, and they wrote a new act called the Declaratory Act that repealed the Stamp Act. But in that new act, Parliament also did continue to assert their ongoing prerogative to tax the colonies as they saw fit. So, in that spirit, in the very next year, 1767, Parliament passed the Townsend Act, which included taxes on a wide range of imported British goods, but most importantly, a big tax on British tea. Now, I have seen a couple of estimates that said that at this point, the colonies were importing over 1 million tons of tea per year. Now, that's a lot of tea, considering the population of the colonies was only around 2 to 3 million people. Anyway, the Townsend Act also taxed glass, china, paper, lead, paint, and some other things. But what the colonists were really bothered with was the tea. A couple of representatives in the Massachusetts House of Representatives, including Samuel Adams and the aforementioned James Otis, wrote a pamphlet called the Massachusetts Circular Letter, which was circulated among all the towns of New England and then out into the other colonies as well. This letter called for a complete boycott of all British imports until the taxes were repealed. Most of New England, including the important ports of Boston and Providence and a few others, voted to completely boycott and not allow British ships to offload their cargo at all. And New York City, which was a big port as well, soon followed suit. So now there were basically two sides in the colonies. There were those who supported the British and opposed the boycotts, and they wanted to basically calm things down and get back to being British. That side was known as the Loyalists, those who wanted to get rid of the British, get rid of the taxes, and preserve the boycott were known as Patriots. The Patriots also were known, many of them, to want to move towards independence. In response to the boycotts and the growing number of Patriots and to curb further protests, the British sent about 2,000 more troops just to Boston. Now, these troops are the famous British Redcoats, known as that because of the, well, red coat that they wore. These are the troops from the famous line, the Redcoats are coming, the Redcoats are coming. Ah, but that line actually happens next episode, so I'm getting ahead again. Ah, how can I not, though? This is getting so exciting and so intense. Anyway, about 2,000 additional Redcoats were sent to Boston. Now, when you consider that Boston itself only had a population of between 16 and 20,000 people, that's actually a lot of troops to send to one city. Boston and all the other colonies were not at all happy about the British troops, but especially Boston. Things are about to happen. Things are about to hit the fan. 
When the British troops arrived, they didn't have a place in the city that was big enough to keep them all, so they forced local homeowners to quarter some of them. That meant that they had to put them in their houses. In many private homes, people had to give up a room and let two to five or so British soldiers stay there. Now, this is a pretty expedient way to get the soldiers all in one place to stay in the city, but it's also a pretty expedient way to really get your colonists angry at you and make them not like the soldiers. The soldiers enforced a curfew, they prevented large meetings, and they generally patrolled the streets trying to keep order and protecting the British governor and other British offices and British officials from attack by colonists. In March of 1770, things boiled over. A mob of colonists had surrounded, and some say attacked, a British merchant's store, trying to intimidate this guy into not selling British goods. A British customs officer who was on the scene fired his pistol in the general direction of the crowd, and he killed an 11-year-old boy named Christopher Sider. Now, this really set the city on edge. On the cold, snowy evening of March the 5th, one lone British sentry was guarding the British Customs House, which is on King Street. A mob of colonists surrounded him and apparently threatened him. The guard hit one of the colonists with his bayonet. Didn't stab him, just hit him with the the blunt side of the bayonet. But the mob responded by pelting the guard with snowballs and also rocks. For some reason that's still a bit of a mystery, church bells all over the city started ringing. It spread all over town. And when that happened at night, it usually meant that there was a fire. So a lot of people ran out into the streets to see what was up. A British captain and more soldiers showed up on the scene to reinforce the one guard. Now the mob, which was bigger than the group of soldiers, continued to pelt the soldiers with snow and with rocks. And then they sort of closed in on the soldiers. Someone it's not clear who, yelled, fire! And one of the British soldiers fired. Then several other soldiers fired. When the shooting stopped, there were seven colonists that had been killed and six more wounded. Then the crowd and all the soldiers dispersed. Shortly after, the British captain and all seven soldiers were arrested, and Samuel Adams and others loudly condemned what became known as the Boston Massacre. Paul Revere, who was a silversmith, created a woodcut image that was widely circulated that showed the British firing on a mostly peaceful crowd. The British soldiers, under heavy threat all around, were evacuated from Boston, and they were moved to a fort a ways outside of town. The British captain and seven soldiers were tried in a court in Boston. Now, ironically, the lawyer who chose to defend them was none other than John Adams, who would go on to help draft the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and would become the second president of the United States. Adams himself did not like the British nor the idea of British soldiers in Boston, but he did want the soldiers to get a fair trial. So Adams very ably defended them, and all the soldiers were found not guilty of murder, though two of them were found guilty of manslaughter. Now, all in all, this did nothing to calm the tension in Boston, but it did greatly increase Adams' reputation among even staunch patriots as a fair and honest man. If you ever have the chance to watch the HBO series John Adams, starring Paul Giamatti, I strongly suggest that you do so. It's a great series. Giamatti is excellent as Adams, and it does a great job of recreating moments like the Boston Massacre, the trial, and the later revolutionary events that we get to in upcoming episodes.
or even better than the series, read the book John Adams by Peter McCullough. The series, of course, is based on the book, and of course the book, as books are, is even better. The book won a Pulitzer, so yeah, it's pretty good. Highest recommendations for that book. It's one of my top five nonfiction books ever. John Adams by Peter McCullough. Anyway, back in Boston, people are boycotting the British goods, not letting British ships dock or unload their goods, and they've sort of chased the troops out of the city. Basically, Boston is in open rebellion, and the British back home know it, and so do the rest of the colonies. They're closely watching what's happening in Boston, knowing that it could happen to them next. Well, after the Boston Massacre, and maybe in part because of it, Parliament in 1770 repealed the Townsend Act. Except, except they didn't repeal the tea tax. As Vivian says, big mistake, big mistake. Then, over the next several years, tea smuggling increased a lot. Samuel Adams and John Hancock were big tea smugglers. Basically, they and other colonial ship owners sent their ships to Belgium. They bought British tea in Belgium, and then they sailed back to the colonies. Then they sold the same tea cheaper than the official British merchants because the smuggled tea was not taxed. So, was this smuggling, or was it just good business? It's not really clear. Yeah, there were laws that were passed by Parliament that restricted it, but the colonists were sort of right that Parliament didn't represent them and thus couldn't pass that kind of law to restrict where they bought their tea. There was no real authority for Parliament to say you can't buy tea from Belgium. So over all the colonies, smuggled tea was big business. It might have been the colony's single biggest import. Then in 1773, Parliament passed the Tea Act, which allowed the British East India Company and Lord Cutler Beckett to sell tea at a reduced price. Now it was cheaper than the smuggled tea even was, though it was still taxed and the British government was still making some tax revenue on it. But this actually caused tea smuggling to increase. In December of 1773, three British ships that were loaded with Chinese tea landed in Boston Harbor. Ah, the powder keg has arrived. The fuse is about to be lit. On the morning of December 16th, a large group of colonists met at the Old South Meeting House, which was one of the largest buildings in Boston, and they voted together to not pay the taxes, not allow the tea to be unloaded or even stored or sold. Now, the British governor of Boston heard about this. His name was Thomas Hutchinson, and he demanded that the tea be unloaded and the tax paid, and he refused to let the ships return to Britain with the tea. Well, that evening, there was another meeting at the Old South Meeting Hall. This meeting was called and led by the Sons of Liberty, who I mentioned earlier, and that included Samuel Adams, John Hancock, and other local merchants. And they all agreed together to not accept the governor's demands. Then, after the meeting, a large crowd of maybe 2,000 people marched down to the docks. About 50 men, some dressed in Mohawk Indian headdresses and with their faces painted with war paint like Indians and carrying hatchets and tomahawks, boarded the three British ships. In each case, they quietly locked the crew in the brig, then brought all the cases of tea up onto the deck of the ship where they tomahawked them open, and then dumped the tea overboard into the harbor as the crowd on shore cheered. After they finished, they swept the decks clean, and then they went and released the crews. Then the men 
and the whole crowd faded into the Boston night. There were no injuries and no shots fired. But wow, that whole thing was a shot fired. In terms of earth-shaking historical events, this is way up there. It's in the same category as the assassination of Julius Caesar or Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg. John Adams, in his diary, said this about it. This is the most magnificent movement of all. There's a dignity, a majesty, a sublimity in this last effort of the patriots that I greatly admire. The people should never rise without doing something to be remembered, something notable and striking. This destruction of the tea is so bold, so daring, so firm, intrepid and inflexible, and it must have so important consequences and so lasting that I can't but consider it as an epica in history. Yeah, I think he was right. It was an incredibly important epic-making event. The Patriots destroyed about 340 chests of tea worth about 10,000 English pounds back in the day. It's maybe about $2 million today in today's useless money. Other than the tea, though, they didn't destroy any property or hurt anyone. But the next day, everything was different. The news was reported all over the colonies, and in several other colonies, similar acts were repeated. When the British government heard about it, they were infuriated, and they passed a series of acts called the Coercive Acts. In the colonies, these were known as the Intolerable Acts. They took away the right of self-government of Massachusetts, which it had had since the Pilgrims had landed, since the Mayflower Compact. The Intolerable Acts also closed the port of Boston completely and put the city under direct military control. Boston and the rest of the colonies were furious with the Intolerable Acts. Most everyone viewed the acts as the beginning of a British effort to restrict the freedom of all the colonists. The acts also created a lot of colonial sympathy for Boston and for Massachusetts and caused even colonial loyalists to wonder if the British government really was friendly towards the colonists at all. And as a response to the acts, the British army reoccupied Boston and re-quartered themselves in people's homes, and British redcoat reinforcements were on the way. The British declared Boston to be under martial law, and then they decided that they needed to disarm the local colonial militias. Join us next episode as we see how that disarming effort goes, as we look at the battles of Lexington and Concord, the shot heard round the world, and we hear Patrick Henry's immortal response. Give me liberty or give me death.